This is Dollar Collapse, your ringside seat for the global economic crisis. To get the full story, go to dollarcollapse.com. Welcome. You are listening to the Financial Survival Network. I'm Kerry Lutz. It's June 5th, 2017. It's Monday. Time for John Rabino. Happy Monday, John. Hey, Kerry. Happy Monday for us, but uh, yeah. probably not for people living in London. You know, they no. had another terrorist attack over the weekend. Yeah, horrible. And yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, it kind of implies that, um, well, which a lot of terrorist experts have said for a long time, that London is kind of wide open. You know, it's an it's really an easy place to operate for people who want to perpetrate stuff like this because it's a big cosmopolitan city. The police generally aren't armed and you've got a, a large population of disaffected people whose roots are from elsewhere. And so we're seeing that play out now. And it, you know, it's interesting to see how the British are grappling with it because it's not, there, there aren't easy answers here. And they've got an election coming up next week. <laughs> so um, how the people in Great Britain react to the stuff that's going on is going to be reflected in electoral results really quickly, you know, in real time. And that race has been tightening up. You know, the um, the sitting prime minister, Theresa May, called a snap election because it looked like the Labour Party, the main opposition party, was in such disarray that the her party, the Conservatives, would win a huge victory and a, and a working majority that would allow them to do Brexit the way they want to do it without having to consult with any other political party. Uh, that doesn't look like the case anymore. The polls have tightened dramatically for a few different reasons. And now you've got this terrorist attack, which may or may not affect the polls. So it, it's not clear whether um, Britain has a a, you know, a working majority government going forward or is forced to create some kind of a coalition that'll kind of hamstring the process of enacting Brexit in the near future. So that's that's all interesting. You know, that's it's kind of a side story to the global financial crisis, which is really our beat. But um, but it's interesting to watch it happen in the sense that financial turmoil leads to political turmoil. So we're seeing all these crazy elections around the world. And, and this is kind of one more example of it where one party basically thought it, it knew exactly what was going to happen in this election. And it turns out they they didn't know after all which way the undecided votes were going to break. So um, I, I think that's a symptom of the global ongoing financial crisis, but it's also um, part of a feedback loop where financial crisis leads to political turmoil, which leads to greater financial uncertainty and so on until this thing just spins out of control. So seen that way, <clears throat> the, uh, the current elections in Britain and the terrorist attacks and everything are basically small parts of a much bigger, much scarier puzzle. Yeah, that's for sure. And you, know, you just think about it. I was in New York for 9-11 going into Manhattan and wasn't able to, but just remember the chaos of that day and everything else. Now, obviously, these attacks are just designed to instill tower, uh, terror rather than physical uh, financial damage. But still, like, then you think anybody passing by you can be a terrorist. It's got to be a really uncomfortable thing. And, you know, don't think that we're going to be exempt here in the U.S. I don't think we're any better at it. Look, it's the same thing over and over, John. Uh, the last three or four guys who went on the rampage in the U.S. and uh, over in um, 
over in England. They knew about these guys, one or more of them. They knew about them. They were reported either by uh, their own intelligence organizations or overseas, but they've known about these people and they've chosen to do nothing, not to take them off the street, do anything. And that's what's really, to me, distressing about it is if you know who the guy is, why can't you stop him? Yeah. Well, you know, in in um, defense of the world's intelligence agencies, they are deluged with data right now. You know, they're they're basically wiretapping everybody and they're reading everybody's emails. Right. Um, and they're pr- presumably surveilling a lot of people. And, the, you know, the result is this tidal wave of stuff that's coming in that no one human being can collate and make sense out of. And that no current artificial intelligence is able, obviously, since we're, we're, you know, we're failing to do it, is able to make sense out of it either. So we're, we're kind of stuck in, um, in a transitional period in terms of intelligence gathering where, you know, we can gather a lot, but we can't make a lot of sense out of it. So stuff slips by and then, and then afterwards people look at it and go, oh, well, look, this, this signal came in three weeks ago that pointed to this guy, you know, and, and, but it's, I think, easier in retrospect to see stuff like that than it is in the moment. If you're a CIA analyst or an NSA guy sitting at a desk with a, a choice of five million different signals coming your way, you know, data points, and and your job is to make sense of it all, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. Uh, which means that for you know terrorist cells who are operating in a low tech way, it's really easy to do a lot of the stuff that they do. You know, if if you're going to hop in a van and drive it into a crowded group of people, you know, a, a party or um, a crowded city street or whatever, um, and you really haven't discussed it with anybody online and you haven't posted your intentions on Facebook, how are they going to know? You know, I mean, they, maybe they've been watching you, but they don't have enough information about you to pick you up yet. Um, and, and you just go do this thing. And, you know, that's that's the world that we live in now. They call it asymmetric warfare, where you, on one hand, you've got these powerful countries with these armies and nuclear weapons and jet planes and stuff like that. On the other side, you've got um, a, a guy sitting in a one bedroom apartment in downtown London yeah. with the car key to a van, you know, and, and that's right. your enemy. And how do you catch somebody like that ahead of time? It's not easy. So, so I think we got to go back to the root cause of all this, which is the fact that the West has been meddling in the Middle East for a hundred years. Uh, and until we just admit that we screwed up on a vast biblical scale, just about, and say, we're sorry and leave, you know, pull our soldiers out of the, the holy sites of, mm-hmm. of uh, the Muslim world, then there's always going to be stuff like this happening. And there's never, going to be a way to stop it short of a total police state, which is kind of the goal of, of terrorism, right? They, they want to, um, to create a new normal in their target countries in which the police are all powerful, the surveillance state is pervasive, and because of that, nobody trusts the government anymore. Yeah. And, well. and you know, in turn, nobody trusts the financial system because it's run by a government that nobody trusts. And so you get a, um, a dictatorship and a depression at the same time. And they're well on their way to creating those kind of conditions. You know, not, not that we aren't doing it on our own, too. You know, we can't can't blame anybody else for our financial screw ups. That's 
that's strictly our own problem that dates back to um, going off the gold standard in 1971, and which has led inexorably to to a point where you know the debts of the developed world are completely unmanageable and can only be dealt with via you know a depression that wipes out all the debt through uh, uh, through default or um, borderline hyperinflation that devalues the currency to the point where we can pay off our existing debts. You know we can't get out from under this without these two kind of crisis scenarios playing out. One or the other, or one then the other, you know, sequentially. And so terrorism feeds into that, you know, geopolitics feeds into that, but it's not the root cause of our financial problems. And it, it but it is an addition to our financial problems. So, you know, we, we have several different kinds of messes all coming oh, to a head at the same time, yes. which makes solving any one of these problems infinitely harder because they're all affected by the others and the others aren't getting any better. Yeah, well, uh, you just go back to Einstein. You can't solve a problem uh, with the same type of thinking that created it. And that's what we're, all we do here is just rehash, recycle the same old stuff. I would just say, point out one thing in the Middle East, it's a little more complicated than our interventions. We've been at war with these guys since the Crusades. And while the West has believed that the war has been over, to Islam, it never ended. And we're finding out now that to them, and they call Westerners crusaders. So the, the war never ended uh, going way back to the battle to take on the Holy Land and the battle to stop the spread of Islam in Europe which took place in Italy, in Spain. Um, I don't know what the solution is, but there's a, a definite uh, difference in the way these religions look at things. And where we become more secular, it seems like uh, they become more fundamental. And I don't know that uh, the West's meddling in the Middle East really has had anything to do with that or not. Carrie, you know? I, I would say that it it has, because if you look at Middle Eastern politics, um, there are always moderates who are saying, you know what, let's let's be part of the world and let's um, let's connect with the West and trade with them and everything and accept that we have different points of view, but agree to disagree um, who, who we would get along with if they were in power and the countries were really run along the lines of their ideas. But the the radicals who have good reason to be mad at the West have a more compelling argument in elections now. You know, they say, look, these guys, they've been bombing us for a hundred years. And, and before that were the crusades and, and they've got soldiers on our holy sites and they overthrow our governments. Look what happened in the 1950s in Iran. You know, they remember all this stuff. And that's a more compelling political argument in elections. Plus, you know, the, the, the radicals are willing to kill their opponents. And I, I think the moderates are not. So um, it, it's way more dangerous to be a moderate politician than to be a radical one in a lot of these countries. So you end up with the Muslim Brotherhood winning elections. And a lot of that is fueled by the fact that they've got some legitimate complaints against the West. And if the moderates don't seem to be addressing those complaints, then the other guys win. And you see that over and over again. There's a, there's a revolution in a Muslim country. And then in the next election, um, Islamists win, you know? <laughs> and I think a big part of the reason for that is that we've given them the um, the material to use in elections that tend to draw a lot of votes. So at a minimum, we could take away some of that fuel mm -hmm. by just not being there. You know, I'm totally with Ron Paul on this, where I, I think that um, the minute we stop 
interfering in these other countries that a lot of the impetus for terrorism goes away. Not all of it, but some of it. Mm -hmm. And that's the starting point. And then from there, you see what happens and then and then try to work it out. But, uh, you know, for us to and, and plus I, I have kind of a personal stake in this because I've got two draft age sons. Mm -hmm. And the idea that there's going to be some new big war in the Middle East where we're over fighting Iran or somebody that we don't understand and that we have no business fighting with to begin with. And they're going to take my kids and send them over there. That's completely unacceptable. You know, mm -hmm. I, I will ship them to Latin America or Canada in a heartbeat <laughs> before I send them to Iran or or Iraq or Afghanistan or any of these places oh. where we have no business. Anyhow, sorry. I'm, you're not I'm too far from Canada. Canada anyway, so yep. it'll be okay. Nah, well, <laughs> I mean, I don't think the draft is coming back anytime soon. Although I would never say never. I just think uh, you got with bad economy, you got like uh, a lot of people who will voluntarily go and the way they suck them in is through the GI plan. And the number of uh, GIs who actually ever take advantage of the GI plan is like 12% or something like that. Somebody was telling me a while ago, it's a very small percentage. Uh, this is how they talk them in. We'll pay for your college and then they never go. And it's not the government's fault, but they know very well that they're waving this carrot that most people are never going to actually digest. So that's another thing. But hey, so what about uh, what about our economy? It looks like the Atlanta Fed said that that GDP could pick up to 3% this quarter. Uh, is this just happy talk, John? <laughs> it's starting again, Carrie. Oh, the the um, GDP forecasters always start out high. You know, at the beginning of every quarter, it looks like we're, we're you know, we're back on track. We've got three or four percent growth and and, um, and government policy has worked and the recovery is gaining steam. And mm -hmm. then the data comes out over the course of a quarter. And you see especially the the Atlanta GDP now chart that they put up kind of in real time. And you see it start to trend down and down and down. And then the blue chip economic forecasters group, which is a group of economists whose um, forecasts are tracked by the Atlanta Fed and also put on the same chart, it starts trending down behind the Atlanta Fed GDP forecast line until we're at some really unacceptable low number. You know, And that happened in the first quarter when it went from three and something down to less than 1% by the end, according to the Atlanta Fed. Uh, and we're heading in that same direction now. Now, if, if we don't generate, the reason this is important is, is if we're not growing at three or 4% a year, our debts relative to the size of the economy continue to get bigger. And that's the real number. You know, look, forget about all the other headline numbers that are out there, unemployment and inflation, and just forget about them. All you really need to know to, to understand where we're headed and what's coming is debt to GDP. Mm. And as long as that continues to increase, the amplitude of the booms and busts will get bigger until one of the busts turns out to be a, a capital D depression or Weimar Germany hyperinflation. You know, it's going mm -hmm. to come as long as we keep digging that hole ever deeper. And if we can't grow literally twice as fast as we're growing right now, the hole continues to get deeper. So that's, um, that's really the dominant fact of our current financial reality. And there's really no way around it because once you borrow an excessive amount of money, it gets harder and harder to grow. In other words, it's harder for the government to convince people to borrow more money and spend it if they've already maxed out their credit cards, if they already have a big mortgage, if they already have a, a car mortgage that's going to be with them for seven more years or whatever. Yeah. 10 years. Um, yeah. You can cut interest rates all you want to. And that, that person with all that debt is going to just sit there and say, no, I don't want to borrow any more money. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to live with. I'd like to, paycheck. but I can't. <laughs> I can't borrow anymore. Right. Yeah. 
Well, I think the the banks play along with this game by reducing or, or by easing loan terms. In other words, they make it easier for you to borrow money as your finances get worse, which is, you know, the absolute dumbest way to do it. But that's how the banking industry works. They ride the trend, you know, they, they want to keep the deal flow going. So they will ease their rules to the extent that they have to, to maintain their fee income, which in effect, um, is their year end bonus pool. So the banks at the peak of cycles are usually doing the dumbest things that they did during the entire cycle, just Mm -hmm. as everything's ready to blow up. And, you know, you're seeing it again here with people lobbying for, um, three percent, 3% down payment mortgages and liar loans again, and, and doing securitizations that we thought were discredited after the 2007, 2008, 2009 financial crash. You know, it's all happening again. There is no such thing as a securitization that that is too risky or non-economical when it comes to banks on Wall Street, correct? No, no. I mean, their their way of judging a securitization is, can they sell it? Yeah. Right. And if they can sell it, then it's by definition not too risky. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's not risky for them, you know, because they're selling it to somebody. They'll securitize their souls. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, they're they're securitizing car loans (laughs) and uh, and leases, uh, residential uh, condo leases, you know, that's what. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously it's going to be another catastrophe at some point. And we just don't right. know when it blows up, but mm-hmm. it, it pretty much has to blow up now, given the numbers, because we, yeah. we are grossly more over indebted now than we were in 2007. As amazing as that oh, sounds, God, you yeah. know, 2007 was a near death experience for the global financial system. Yes. And um, we we doubled a lot of different sectors debt since then. You know, the, the U.S. government owes twice as much now as it did in 2007. Astounding. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and now you've got theorists out there saying, well, you know, what, what the government is overlooking is that uh, it, it can just print all the money that it needs to, to run itself. It doesn't even have to raise taxes and it doesn't have to issue bonds. You know, modern monetary theory, which is mm-hmm. coming along quickly now into the mainstream because yeah. it promises a free lunch, you know, for everyone. A free lunch yeah, for, for everyone. All. We just create Regardless. the money, you know, as much money as the government needs, as if that's a yeah. fixed number, you know, if, as if it won't expand to infinity as soon as you turn yes. the government loose with a, a printing press that doesn't even involve borrowing or, or raising taxes. Yeah, free lunch And then you also... <laughs> you, you've also got people talking about a guaranteed permanent right. income mm-hmm. where just by virtue of being a citizen, the government pays you, you know, eight grand a year, 10 grand a year, whatever it is they're talking about. I like that. Of newly created currency printed That's out of great. thin air. I think it's great. At, yeah. It, I, I would like that. Why yeah, work? Right. Uh, and my kids would really like that. <laughs> oh, your kids, uh, hey, you'd finally be able to get rid of them. You'd be able to get them out of the house because the government right. will take Thank care you, of government. them. Thank you, government. Yeah. Hey, I can downsize. See, the government's but, good for something. Whatever yeah. it takes but, but to see, get them out. <laughs> what, what these new theories seem to miss, and, and it's so obvious, I, I can't believe I even have to say it, is that you can control the supply of a currency by creating more currency, but you can't control its market value. Yes. So after a certain point, the supply demand imbalance becomes so mm-hmm. outrageous that the currency plunges in value. Right. And then everybody who's holding on to it loses all their money and the financial system is thrown into turmoil. You know, it's your basic currency crisis, which we've seen, what, 500 of in human history. And it always 
kind of sort of goes the same way where you um, you start yeah. to destroy, destroy the value of your currency and that causes turmoil and, and political risk for the people in charge who then impose really draconian capital controls and price controls, which sends the system spinning completely out of control. And then you get a collapse. Um, Roman Empire, France did it twice in the 1700s, Germany yeah. in, in uh, the 1920s, many, many other countries since then. Um, and we're, we're doing it again, only we're doing it on a global scale now with um, with actually the Japanese Central Bank, the European Central Bank and the People's Bank of China all increasing their balance sheets faster than the U.S. Fed, which is to say that they're all pumping more currency into the system than the U.S. is, even though we're guilty of pumping way too much currency into the system. These other countries are doing it on an even bigger scale than we are now. So yeah. it's a global problem, which is going to have a, you know, a global solution, which will be painful for 5 billion out of the world, 7 billion people. <laughs> you yes. know, this is going to be big when it comes because it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be painful. Correct. And it's going to happen. Um, you know, the uh, English central bank, though, always managed to avoid hyperinflation, didn't they? Well, um, they, the, the British pound depreciated dramatically while the English or while the British empire was being unwound and the pound was being devalued in order to further a lot of social goals. And they didn't have a hyperinflation, but, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but the pound is worth a lot less today than it was. Yes. But not and hyper, it's, not, at least in terms of yeah. gold and real estate and pretty much anything you want to buy with it. But, the, you know, Britain is one of the, uh, the examples of a reasonably orderly unwinding of an empire. Usually it doesn't work that way. Usually it just spins apart and there's a revolution and chaos. Um, but, oh. but they basically allowed or, or allowed themselves to be forced out of their um, colonies and just contracted over a period of time. And it was a really tumultuous period of time involving, a, you know, depreciating currency and strikes and, you know, a lot of electoral oh, yeah. turmoil and stuff like that. But they made it through intact. Thanks in large part to Margaret Thatcher, who kind yeah. of pulled him back from the brink in the 1980s. And thanks to the but, U.S. Thanks to the U.S. too. If the U.S. Yeah. wasn't there to pick up the pieces, it would have been violent, right? It would have been well, really nasty. Well, yeah, post-World War II, the U.S. was a, a stabilizing force for Europe. In other words, we, we kind of picked up the, the, uh, the defense bill for those guys yeah. and did most of the heavy lifting versus the Soviet Union, which, which, you know, could have just swept across Europe if they wanted to. They had, they had plenty of tanks right. after World War II um, to allow them to end up, you know, in France, sitting across the, the English Channel from Britain mm -hmm. in a matter of days, if that's what they wanted to do. And, and they, they yeah. who knows, they might have done it if the U.S. wasn't standing in their way. Yeah, we, so, and, and that's continued to this day. You know, we're, we're paying a much bigger part of our GDP for our military than European countries are. Hey, and and that's, that, that's one of the things that it's interesting. You know, Trump yeah. is getting a lot of criticism for calling NATO names and demanding <laughs> that we be paid back for, for defending hey. them. But they promised they would spend 2% of GDP, which is way less than we spend, by the way. Uh, we spend like um, five, on, I think. But yeah. Yeah. And and they never did it, you know. And, and right. so a U.S. president is totally justified in asking for them to live up to the original agreement, you know, in which we, we promised to do most of the work, but they had to do some of the work. They had to do something. And they didn't. They've done nothing. Hey, so that brings us to the Paris Accord, uh, the Climate Accord. So it was a non-binding, feel-goodistic piece of whatever. It was never going to have any effect on 
climate change. If there is climate change, it wasn't going to have any effect on it. But there was a fund created to uh, to support green projects around the world, not in the United States, but around the world. And do you know how much the U.S. Uh, contributed to it, John? Mm, I would guess a lot. A billion dollars. Do you know how much the rest of the world contributed to this climate change fund? <laughs> Just take a how wild much? guess. Just take uh, a guess. Zero. Less than a billion dollars? Zero. Oh, okay. And China and India are not included in these targets. And I, I tend to agree with you that in 50 years, this point will be completely moot because we will have transferred over to the next energy source, especially because of the advances in battery technology, more almost than the advances in solar cells. I mean, Musk is saying he's going to get to 24% efficiency. If that's the case, then... That will be the least expensive form of energy out there by by far, uh, and then it becomes a scalability issue. How do you how do you get it all out there to generate enough electricity collectively to satisfy society's needs? And twenty four percent efficiency will help get us there. Then it's just batteries storing the stuff as you uh, generate it. But yeah, so we contributed the country a billion dollars and nobody else put a penny in it. And uh, it's a bad thing because we uh, withdrew from this thing. Why? Uh, what am I missing here? Yeah, well, uh, I I totally agree with what you're saying about uh, this, this being a um moot point a few decades hence, because it really does look like solar and wind are just taking over the energy market. So it, it doesn't so much matter um, what governments promise to do. We're going to exceed those promises by right. vast margins going forward if the, the current trends continue. You know, I've, I've got an article in front of me right now with a headline, U.S. solar market grows 95% in 2016. Now, the overall energy market grows at one or two percent a year, which means that if uh, if some small component of it, like solar, is growing at uh, you know a, a rate where it doubles every three or four years, let's be conservative here. It almost doubled in one year last year. Uh, that means it's going to start squeezing the incumbent technologies off the field in short order. And, uh, you know, there, there's really no end in sight to the progress that solar and batteries combined can make because, uh, you know, solar panels kind of a microprocessor, which means it can get cheap at a dramatic, you know, cheaper at a dramatically increasing rate for a long time. Uh, and, and we're seeing that now, you know, where, where 15 or 20 percent cost decreases in solar electricity are becoming kind of normal. And, you know, and, and they're cutting solar deals where um, they're without any kind of subsidy. The electricity generated by a solar farm in India or someplace like that is cheaper than what comes from a coal fired power plant. And this was not expected, okay? You know, everybody expected solar power to eventually reach grid parity sometime in the indefinite future, you know, and, and it's happening way faster than anybody thought, which means solar will spread faster than anyone expected, which means that the world will probably exceed its targets for slowing and then diminishing the amount of carbon that we're putting into the air sooner than anybody expected. So this is probably not going to be seen as a huge problem 10 years from now. You know, we, we still might suffer a lot of the effects of 
let's assume for a second, just to uh, to be on that side of the argument, that what we've done in the past hundred years is affecting the climate and will continue to affect the climate. We'll still suffer from whatever that happens to be going forward, but we won't contribute more to it starting in, you know, a decade from now or, or whenever, you know, we'll, we'll be diminishing the amount of carbon that we're putting into the air at an accelerating rate so that it won't be seen as necessary to cut these deals and to, um, you know, to, to put restrictions on what businesses can do or anything, because they'll voluntarily be putting solar panels on, you know, their big box store roofs and, and their parking lots, and they'll be adopting self-driving electric cars, you know, because the market is there for stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so governments won't have to force anybody to do anything because we'll all voluntarily go that way. Uh, and, you know, assuming that the after effects of the the climate change stuff that happened since the industrial revolution assuming they're not catastrophic then we'll come through this in in decent shape you know we'll, we'll um be a much cleaner society 50 years from now than we are today and the trend will be continuing at that point towards cleaner technologies and and uh, less destructive ways of doing things so uh, you know that doesn't stop the financial crisis of course you know we're we're going to have a gigantic financial crisis while all this is going on and precious metals will probably be a good investment while all this is going on. You know, that, that's a, a kind of a separate issue. Um, technologies can come into their own and spread even while there's a giant financial crisis happening, like car sales doubled during the 1930s because that technology was ready. You know, everybody wanted a, a cool new Model T or whatever, and, and um, they were getting cheaper and there were enough people around to buy them, even during the Depression, that cars were a huge growth industry. The same thing is going to happen with a lot of clean technologies, among other things, during the gigantic financial crisis that has to happen here. You know, as long as it doesn't come along with global thermonuclear war or something like that, uh, we're, we're going to see amazing progress in a lot of different areas. You know, stem cells, Gary, which you and I oh, talked yeah, about. Sure. Amazing stuff going to happen. Mm -hmm. And um, and solar and wind and batteries and um, artificial intelligence, all of that stuff is going to, at least at first, dramatically improve the lives of the people who can afford it, you know? So one of the reasons to save money now and to invest wisely is so you can buy this stuff when it comes along. You know, you can you can buy a self-driving car and you can buy a big battery pack for your garage, which is charged by your solar panels that takes you completely off the grid for half the price of what you're paying now for electricity. All that stuff's going to be out there. Or you can buy the, uh, the next generation stem cell treatment that will add 15 years to your life, you know, and, and then yeah. get you to the next level of technology when it comes along. Okay. That's all going to be available, but none of it's going to be cheap. <laughs> so we need to be accumulating yeah. capital now. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one thing that's really uh, been leading to uh, less CO2 in the air is the fact that uh, that we're using natural gas to power mm -hmm. power plants and it's made coal economical, uh, uneconomical rather. So all these things, uh, everything has has an impact on it. And we've actually been compliant with the Kyoto protocols and we never intended to ever uh, 
ever meet them. It was a totally bogus treaty or agreement. Never became a treaty. It was uh, rejected by the Senate. And we never intended to. We never even tried to. And yet the technology got us there. So ignorance got us into this mess. Ignorance will get us out. Right now we got to get out. So check out John's work over at dollarcollapse.com. Questions, comments, email kl at kerrylutz.com. The Twitter feeds at kerrylutz. You can also tweet us there. And the Facebook page, Financial Survival Network. We will catch up with you next Monday, John. Thanks, Kerry. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening to Dollar Collapse. For regular info and updates throughout the day, go to dollarcollapse.com. 